We are concluding our sermon series on stewardship today, and we've been talking about our mission statement over the last several, <laughs> last several weeks um, about our mission statement that says to love God, serve others, and transforming lives. And today we are talking about that last piece of our mission statement that says transforming lives. Um, now my, my son didn't do it just a few minutes ago, but my son is in the habit of mimicking right now. Um, to repeating things that you say, which I can tell by your face, yeah, it's kind of dangerous. You have to um, be very careful about what you say around him because chances are he is going to repeat it. Now, the first time that I said to him, mom is going to have a baby, he said, no, thank you. I thought at least he was polite about it. And then he went from that to, no, I'm going to have a baby. I thought, well, that would be helpful if you would do this for me, but you know. And then he finally started saying, Mama's gonna have a baby. But he mimics and says the things that people say to him. And that's how he is learning to put sentences together. And this past week, when he wasn't with us, he was with his grandparents, he came home and he started doing this really interesting thing. Whenever he wouldn't want one of us to come near him or wanted us to stop or, or do something different, he would look at us and go, Stay, stay, and we were like, excuse me? <laughs> and so we kept trying to figure out where he was getting it, where did that come from? So we finally called Kyle's parents and said, okay, so James has been telling us to stay recently, and she went, oh, yeah, I say it like that to the dog all the time, and I even say it with that inflection, Cooper, stay. And so James started mimicking that and repeating that. Um, and you know, normally I can keep a straight face when he does things that we need to correct. Um, I could not keep a straight face when my husband was having to tell my son to stop talking to him like a dog. <laughs> so our scripture verse today is talking about mimicking, talking about imitating and doing something like someone else. It's a scripture that comes from this very small book in the Bible called Philippians. So much of our scripture is attributed to Paul, the um, letters that Paul writes to the early churches. And this particular letter is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Whew go too fast and you'll miss it. There's only four chapters. So he writes this beautiful letter to the church in Philippi. And Philippi is this area that is on one of the roads towards Rome. And so while it's just a, a lot of ruins right now, back in that time, it was a huge area of commerce and trade. Now, I don't know that Paul had favorites among his churches, but as I read Philippians, it is a word of encouragement to the people of Philippi, to the church of Philippi, to continue the work that Paul has started and that they are imitating by Christ. So it's coming from chapter 2 of Philippians, um, and the title, if you're looking in your Bible, actually says, Imitating Christ's Humility. So let's read the word of God together. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any co consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to yourself and own self-interest, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself Taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name. So at the name of Jesus, so that the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to stop right there first and walk, walk you through a little bit of this. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's one that I've come back to over and over again um, because it is one that um, you're required in the ordination process to preach on. And so it is incredibly important, even in the Methodist tradition, that we know what this passage means. One of the questions that you were asked both in your paperwork for ordination and in, um, in your interviews as you become ordained in the United Methodist Church is, what does it mean to you for Jesus Christ to be Lord? What does that mean to you? Now, not studying this scripture well enough at the time, I became very stressed by that question. I don't know. I don't know that I use the word Lord a lot when I'm talking about Jesus. But the reason why that particular word is there, what do you understand when we say Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, that's because Lord is often used as an authority figure. The word Lord is used as someone who takes power, who takes authority. But what we read in this scripture in Philippians, when we, before we read that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is that what it means for Jesus Christ to be Lord is that Jesus humbled himself. And not only humbled himself, humbled himself as a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross. So for Jesus Christ to be named Lord and to be exalted as Lord does not mean that we give Jesus the same kind of kingship and power that we think of maybe in the Roman Empire or in our culture today. What it means for Jesus to be Lord is actually turned on its head. It means something actually a lot more radical. For Jesus Christ to be Lord, it means that he put others before him. In fact, he put every single person in front of him, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you're reading this scripture in your Bible, when you get to verses 6 through 11, you notice that there is a break and it's actually written as a poem. It's written as a liturgy and what it's called and what it's quoting here, what Paul is quoting here is actually the Christ hymn. And so this particular passage of scripture that's called the Christ hymn that starts with who, though he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but humbled himself 
and ends with, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This Christ hymn was spoken and sung by the early church over and over again as a reminder that to be the people of God, to be Christ-like, the point and the tenet the most essential part of who Jesus was and why we name Jesus as Lord has to do with this word, humility. This is one of those words that we hear Paul talk about later in Galatians when he's talking to a different church and he's naming the fruits of the Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit has given us gifts. They're called fruits of the Spirit. And those gifts are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, generosity and self-control. What we hear in those fruits of the Spirit is this understanding that to be like Christ, to be someone who walks in the way that Jesus walked, we have to bear the same fruit and be about the same descriptive words that Jesus was about. Now, that term fruit of the Spirit is definitely a churchy word. It's one that I have not often used because it's one that unless you've been in church your whole life, you don't really know what the fruits of the Spirit are. But another way to think about it is to think about the inside of a fruit. Every fruit, not every fruit, but most fruits, if you cut it open, what does it have inside? A seed. A seed to reproduce and to grow more fruit. So the reason why it is called the fruits of the Spirit has something to do with redistribution. Has something to do with us not only receiving that gift, giving that gift back in the fruits of the Spirit, but then watching the way and the domino effect that God produces more fruit through us collectively when we are about the actions of the fruits of the Spirit. Two of those fruits have to do with generosity and humility. There's that phrase, what goes around comes around. And I've often thought about that phrase in sort of a haunting way, that if you do something negative or that if you do something that um, others don't like, well, it's gonna come around. It's gonna come around on you again, so beware. But I wonder if we can hear that a little bit differently through the fruits of the Spirit. What goes around comes around. Have you ever been in a drive through line and gotten up to the window after you've ordered your food and the person at the counter says, I'm sorry, the person in front of you has already paid for your meal. You can go on. That's happened to me once or twice. And what I've noticed in that is that it not only cheers up my day, it not only is a gift that reminds me that people are good and that the people are awesome, But then it it empowers me to do the same. The last time I was in a drive-thru, I was so humbled by that experience and I was so encouraged by somebody doing something for me who didn't know who I was or didn't know how much I had ordered. And um, doing that selfless act that I got out of the drive-thru and then went, oh, I should have done that. I should have paid it forward and done that for the next person. So I went back around and saw the cashier again and said, hey, I want to pay for the person in line behind me. What goes around comes around. What we give, the fruit that we bear, has the possibility through the Holy Spirit to be produced and redistributed and to grow in abundance in the way that Jesus talks about. 
but only if we put those words, those descriptive words to action. I find that humility and generosity are maybe the most difficult ones I, I struggle with in the fruits of the Spirit, but they're also the most transformative ones. When we talk about our mission statement, transforming lives, well, that, that starts with us. That starts with our life being transformed. I don't know about you, but I'm someone who struggles with humility. I struggle in a culture that is very competitive and, and even in a family that is very competitive to want to be the best, to want to stand out, and to want to go the furthest. And I struggle with generosity, so much so that when I went into ministry, this became a really difficult place for me. Now, as I said earlier, my mom taught me well. She modeled for me well the act of giving and the act of generosity. But when I got to the church and realized that my mom's wallet wasn't there and it was coming out of my wallet, I didn't quite know how to respond to that. I felt my, my fists begin to clench and then I began to sort of feel shame that I was feeling that way and I would hide all of it. So I, I heard in a, a sermon one time with a pastor who said, here's maybe a place to start. If you are not ready to make a pledge or to know at the beginning of the year how much you want to give every week, what if every week when you came in, whatever is in your wallet, you put in the plate? I thought, okay, yeah, I can do that. That sounds like that, that prayer, with all that I have and all that I am, with whatever I have right in front of me, I'm going to give it to God. And so, you know, the first time I had a couple of dollars on me and that felt good. And the next time I had a 20 on me and I thought, you know, that even feels better. And then we got around to my birthday, you know, when I got money in the cards from my grandparents for the birthday. And I found myself leaving that money at home so that it wasn't in my wallet when I got to church. Do you see how hard it is for us to let go of the things that we have control over? Do you see how difficult it is when we try to give it to God, put it in God's hands, put God before ourselves, how often that maybe means that we do so with a clenched fist? The last part of this scripture that I want to read to you is from uh, verses 12 and 13. Paul gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to maybe how we can work on this. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work on your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, because you are beloved children of God, work out your own salvation. I love that uh, Paul there, even though this is translated from the Greek, I love that it says work out. Because it is, it's an exercise. I don't know about you, but I'm not somebody that is very good at group exercise. And I'm not actually very good at exercising in general. I find that my attitude becomes frustrating. Even if it's somebody on the screen, I tried to do the Peloton thing for a while, you know, where they're talking to you and motivating you. And I found myself saying really bad words to those instructors as we kept going on and on and on. And the bike was staying in the same place. 
work out your salvation. In the United Methodist Church, we don't believe that salvation is a one-time thing. If you've ever heard the phrase, are you saved? You might want to say, yes, by the grace of God, I'm saved every day. In the United Methodist Church, we believe that salvation is ongoing. That through God's grace, we receive salvation over and over again. And so what Paul is saying to us when he says, work out your salvation, is that it's not something where you say I'm saved or you do a quick prayer and you get your ticket to heaven and then we move on. It's something that we recommit to. It's something that we have to do together as the body of Christ. Something that we commit to over and over again. One of my favorite quotes comes from a man who won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1980. His name is Adolfo Pereira Esquivel, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his courageous defense of human rights and democracy for the people of Latin America and for serving as an inspiration to oppressed people all over the world. He was someone who spent a little bit of time in prison. He was someone who very much spoke against injustice and spoke up for people who had no voice. And when he received the Nobel Peace Prize, this was what he said um, as he received it in his speech. Because of this faith in Christ and humankind, we must apply our humble efforts to build a more just and humane world. I want to affirm emphatically such a world is possible. To create this new society, we must reach out our hands fraternally without hatred for reconciliation and peace. With unfaltering determination in the defense of truth and justice, we know we cannot plant seeds with closed fists. To sow, we must open our hands. We know we cannot plant seeds with closed fists. To sow, we must open our hands. I find that that is the struggle that I was having early on about generosity. I find it's one where I need the church over and over again to remind me because if I'm doing it on my own or if I'm doing it for myself, I'm doing it with closed fists. If you want to grab the most amount of sand, if you do it with one hand, and take hold of it, the sand's going to fall through your fingers. But what if instead we had open hands, scooped it together, and held it together? This is the image and metaphor that Paul is given to, giving to the people of Philippi. That to exalt Jesus as Lord, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, means that we follow a man who humbled himself so deeply that nothing else mattered. When it says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, those words don't actually mean fear and trembling. I would really rather the, that Paul say, work out your salvation and fear not, as the angel Gabriel said. But instead he says, work it out with fear and trembling. And what those words mean are with awe and with reverence. And in the very last piece of chapter 2, Paul tells us to shine like stars in the sky. And for a man who was not very metaphorical all the time, I appreciate that image. Because when you think about the stars and the sky and the galaxy, you have this image of awe and reverence. 
fear and trembling, of how great the galaxy is and how small we are, and yet God puts us right next to that grandness and says we are good and important too. Work out that salvation with awe and reverence, constantly directed towards who God is and the teachings of Jesus Christ. So for us, so that we don't have a clenched fist, we have to work it out. We have to figure it out in a new way. One of the questions that I realized I was too scared to ask when it came to generosity and to stewardship and any time that the church and the preachers started talking about giving our money to the church, I began to ask, okay, but why here? I know the Bible says, I know that Jesus says that a tithe is 10% of your income. I know that that's biblical, so okay, I get that. But what about that connection of giving it to the church? Because it may be my generation, but there's a lot of really great nonprofits and places I could give my money. Why the church? Are we really sure that Jesus meant the local church when Jesus said to give our tithes 10% of our income back to God? Does the church equate God? Now, those are all questions that I've had to wrestle with and ones that I'm able to name out loud now because they're ones that I had to find the answer to. Just like in the church, you have memberships other places. And even when you don't have an official membership other places, you have loyalty other places. Think for a second about where you buy your groceries. Do you have a place that you go that's your place to buy groceries? Are there certain products that you buy that you have brand loyalty to? I would say without a doubt that I have brand loyalty to Bluebell ice cream. If I'm gonna be buying ice cream, it's gonna be Bluebell. If I'm gonna be buying shoes, I'm gonna be buying Tom's. I have brand loyalty to certain things. And when I began to think about Jesus saying, giving back to God, what we have to do in stewardship is not just a reflection of our own generosity, but it's a reflection of the mission of this church. The time of stewardship is a time for us to evaluate together the mission of this church. And for you each individually to say, is this where I'm committed? Is this the place where I see the people of God at work, loving God, serving others, and transforming lives? As someone who's now been at five different churches, I've had to ask that question a lot. This year, it was a difficult question for us. At the same time that a pledge card was in um, our mailbox this year from Christ United Methodist Church, that same week we were um, at the doctor's office um, doing a sonogram and seeing our sweet baby. And then later that week, we were at a car dealership buying a new car. It wasn't as fun. But in both of those places, we were given some financial statements. We were taken to the finance office over at the hospital and so that they could talk to us about a financial plan to pay for this baby that we're having. And then, of course, as we put down money for a new car, they walked us through the financial plan and the monthly payment. And all in the same week, 
the numbers started to add up to the monthly payments that my husband and I are now going to start needing to give to other places. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. I know I'm not the only one with bills. I know I'm not the only one with a family. But you may be like me and looking at your budget and looking at your finances right now going, gosh, things are tight. Can I actually commit to the church again when things are this tight? What I know for my life is that it starts with my heart. Transformation is not about making the numbers work. It starts with my heart. And I don't know that I'd call it brand loyalty, but I would say that if I call myself a Christian, a follower of Christ, then generosity has to be at the forefront of who I am. It has to be at the forefront of what I model for my children, just like my mom modeled it for me. My prayer for each one of us today is that as we commit once again, and pledge once again to this church that it's both an individual and collective act of worship that we do together. Individual in the sense that you re-up your membership in some way, re-up your covenant with God in some way because we need that constant reminder and we need one another to remind ourselves of how to follow Christ. And that we do this act collectively as a community together Because Christ United Methodist Church is the place that we believe and that we call home, that we follow and act upon a mission of loving God and serving others and transforming lives.